You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The plane levels out, and finally the seatbelt sign pings off. There's a flurry of movement as several passengers jump up from their seats and start rummaging in the overhead compartments. Praying there won't be a line for the bathroom, she unclicks her belt, steals herself to edge her bulk past the fellow in the aisle seat when an almighty booming sound rockets through the plane. Pam immediately thinks of a car backfiring, but planes don't backfire, do they? She yelps, a delayed reaction that makes her feel faintly stupid. It's nothing. Thunder, maybe. Yes, that's it. The guidebook said it wasn't unusual for storms to hit. Another bang, this one more like a gunshot. A chorus of reedy screams drifts from the front of the aircraft. The seatbelt light flashes on again and Pam fumbles for the belt. Her fingers are numb, she can't remember how to tighten it. The plane drops, giant hands press down on her shoulders and her stomach feels like it's being forced up into her throat. Uh Uh-uh, no, this can't be happening, not to her. Things like this don't happen to people like her, ordinary people, good people. A jolt. The overhead lockers rattle and mercifully the aircraft seems to calm itself. A ping, a babble of Japanese then. Please remain in your seat with your seatbelt tightly fastened. Pam breathes again, the voice is serene, unconcerned. It can't be anything too serious, there's no cause for her to panic. She tries to peer over the backs of the seats to see how everyone else is reacting, but can only make out a series of bowed heads. She grasps the armrests again. The plane's vibration has increased. Her hands are actually juddering now. A sixth throb reverberates up through her feet. An eye half-hidden behind a fringe of jet-black hair appears in the gap between the seats in front of her. It must be the small child she remembers being dragged down the aisle by a stern, lipsticked young woman just before they took off. The little boy had stared at her, clearly fascinated. You can say what you like about Asians, she thought, but their children are as cute as buttons. She'd waved and grinned, but he hadn't responded, and then his mother had barked something at him, and he'd slid immediately into his seat, out of sight. She tries to smile, but her mouth is dry, and her lips catch on her teeth, and oh lordy, the vibration is getting worse. Sarah Lotz writes horror under the name S.L. Gray with author Louis Greenberg, a YA zombie series, Deadlands, with her daughter Savannah under the pseudonym Lily Hearn, and Erotica with authors Helen Moffat and Paige Nick under the name Helena S. Page. Her new novel as Sarah Lutz is The Three. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Sarah, what made you finally decide to write a novel under your own name? Well, I'd, I have actually written some before. They were just published in South Africa, and I think that pretty much the only people that read them were um, people related to me, like my family. <laughs> I think my first my first novel had um, about 50 readers. So, um, and I love collaborating, but I thought it was about time that I did actually write by myself. And this is, yeah, so this is the, the result. This is such a great novel. It's a really inventive uh, piece of literature, but it's also utterly gripping and enchanting. So talk about coming up with the kind of the high concept behind this book. Did this idea just come to you in a dream or? Well, the initial idea came from the fact that I'm I'm flight phobic, which is kind of strange because I'm traveling around the States. <laughs> like I'm on a plane every day. <laughs> I feel really sorry for whoever has to sit next to me on the plane because, you know, I'm like gripping the armrests and I'm mumbling under my breath and I'm like begging for a drink. So that's where the initial idea came from, because it's I always wanted to write a plane crash novel because I'm being fascinated about everything to do with air travel because of the fear. So that's where the initial idea came from. And then I started thinking about, well, um, rather than just a plane, uh, excuse the pun, a plane, plane investigation crash novel, I th- started thinking about, well, what if it was a little bit more than that? And then what if there was more than one plane crash on, one d- in, on a single day? What if there were two or three or even four? So that's where the, the idea sprang from. Well, I think it's really well handled. And one of the things that when we read this novel, apparently only like the first 10 pages and the last 
five pages are by Sarah Lotz. The rest of it is a book within a book by Elspeth Martins. So talk about creating the character of the author who writes the bulk of the book. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was really, really fun because I had to think about, you know, everyone has an agenda. Every writer kind of has an agenda. So especially if you, uh, she's writing a nonfiction book. So it was very interesting kind of thinking what her possible bias might be in creating this book. And and to be honest, that when she starts off, she is just a tabloidy sort of journalist who wants to write something that's a, a little bit sort of pushing people's buttons. I mean, she's written her first book is a book called Snapped, which is about uh, sort of gun control, which, of course, causes a lot of furore. And so in this one, she's collating all the accounts from all the different the you know, looking at the conspiracy that comes that that follows on from all the um, air crashes, and so she's the one that is editing all of the interviews, and so we're never quite sure if, if these people who she's interviewing are telling the truth, if she's edited something out, or if she's you know putting forward her own kind of bias, which was very fun to do. Well, I love the setup for this book because you have four plane crashes at once. Mm. And our immediate fear these days would be terrorism, which you immediately rule out and everybody immediately rules out. And they keep ruling it out through the book mm. in case anybody wants to bring <laughs> it up. And tell us about who the three are. I can't because that's a massive spoiler. But the three um, actually are, I suppose, that there are three... Um, survivors of the air crashes and they are all children and it's thought that possibly there might be a fourth survivor but we're not sure who is also a child and what's strange about these children is that they shouldn't actually have survived I mean the plane crashes that occur in the novel are devastating they're all commercial airliners that go down pretty much everybody loses their life yet these three children survive so that is really where the um, the story picks up. It's like, why have they survived? How have they survived? And yeah, I, I did deliberately want to rule out terrorism because I think there are um, enough uh, novels about that and done far better than I could ever do them. So yeah, I wanted to go in a different direction. Well, I love the direction that you did take this book in. And I'd like to talk about, we have four different plane crashes of four different planes in four different localities. You have set your must have set yourself up for a huge amount of work because there's the research into the planes, mm. into the places they crash, into the crews who are flying the planes, and into the people who are tend to be on the planes given their destinations. So talk about once you have set this up for yourself, uh, how did you undertake to research this book and also to create very convincing crashes? It was um, it was a mammoth mammoth task, and when I first came up with the idea, I didn't I underestimated how much I'd have to do. I mean, it really did consume me. I, I decided deliberately that I wasn't just going to stick to locations that I knew. So I'm from um, I was originally I was born in the UK, but I've been living in Cape Town in South Africa for the last um, twenty years. So it would have been quite easy for me to set everything in Cape Town or the UK. But I wasn't going to do that. I mean, that's just a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? Especially if you want to do like a global novel. So I decided to look around for other locations. And one of them that I, that I found where one of the planes goes down is um, in what's known as the suicide forest outside Tokyo, just at the foot of Mount Fuji. And this is an, a, an incredibly powerful location. It's I'd actually read about it. I think it was on a website of the top 10 creepiest places. And rather tragically, more than 100 um, Japanese people t go there to kill themselves every year. And I decided that I would go and research this place. And I actually took my mom with me. And we went to this forest that has that's loaded with mythology and myth. And I, I really thought that we'd be very depressed and scared. And we got there and it was snowing and it was absolutely beautiful. You know, even though this place had this atmosphere of pure tragedy, it was it was stunning. But then I did want to get across in the novel that this place was loaded with, you know, all kinds of horrific connotations. So I had to, in some ways, sort of marry what I'd seen with what I wanted the sort of the point to be about this crash location. And then um, <clears throat> I was very fortunate that my husband's best friend is actually a pilot for SAA. 
So (laughs) that really got lucky. So he really, really helped me out and introduced me to a lot of people to talk to, like investigators. And um, there's a a transcript in the novel um, about the last moments of, of the Japanese air crash. And he really helped me with that to make sure that it was nuanced and it was correct and the terminology was correct. And yeah. One of the things I think that makes this book so interesting is that you immediately introduce us to these four simultaneous events, and it's a big cast of characters. Mm. And part of the fun of this novel is putting together the different visions of the characters. Sometimes they speak for themselves. Sometimes you hear about them from other people or from people who knew people who knew them or saw them for a moment. So when you set out to write this, how big a cast did you have and did it grow as you started to take this? Because the style that you've adopted here, this oral history, is really, really interesting. I think of an incredibly tense way to tell the story. Oh, thank you. Well, um, actually, there are about 20 characters that have been cut out. I do think, I don't know if you like that. I always think of the movie Deconstructing Harry, where he has to face all his characters at the end. And I think that's what's going to happen to me is all these people I've killed off (laughs) who just didn't didn't make it to the book, didn't make the final cut. You know, so, yeah, there's a massive like cast of characters and getting the voices right. And I'm not saying 100% that I have. I know, for example, that there is an error on page two. <laughs> that is not, you know, because we're talking, there's people who are Japanese people. I've, I've, I've got characters who are refugees, African refugees. I've got a South African characters um, and Afrikaans paramedic, for example. I've got people from Texas who are speaking in as in an or you know sort of telling their story so their their voices had to be convincing they had to try very hard not to be stereotypical and to write it like that you have to hear their voices and it was that was that was it was wonderful channeling their voices if you like but uh, afterwards i was so worried i was so worried that i'd screwed it up so i had a, a massive team of people who were reading, you know, like the Texans were reading the, the Texan character parts and the, I had Japanese friends reading the, the Japanese characters and, you know, my South African friends were doing the same for the African sections. So, um, yeah, that that was, yeah, a mammoth undertaking and, um, like I say, you know, you think it's a large cast of characters, but, yeah, that was, it's actually cut right down from what it was. <laughs> Maybe I'm just greedy with characters. Maybe I'm, yeah, I'm too greedy. Probably. Well, one of the things I think that's interesting about this book with regards to the plane crashes is that you point out the damage done not just by to the people in the plane, but the place where they crash. And this is particularly true in Kailishta. Kailishta, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's not the easiest <laughs> word to say, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I think you do a great job of, of showing us that the plane crash while it kills all the people in the plane, it does a lot, almost more damage to the mm. people on the ground. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, because I'm from Cape Town and Kailich is the, the largest um, township in, in, in the area, in Cape, the Cape Town area. And I really wanted to show that that, that location, because quite often that, that sort of location is left out of novels. And I, I really wanted to make a point that, you know, this is how the majority of the population in South Africa do live. And also one of the things I I discovered that was quite fascinating was that if there's going to be an apocalypse at any time soon, you actually want to be in Cape Town because the Cape Town Disaster Management Services is amazing. They have thought of every eventuality short of like giant tripod robots coming to get us. So that was incredible. But it was um, part of it was based on there was a recent well, fairly recent crash in Nigeria in Lagos. A plane went down right in the heart of the city so you know that were it was the devastation was i remember watching it and being sick to my stomach very very powerful and disturbing images so that is why also i i yeah like you say it's, i mean it's all about the human cost isn't it so well, I, I love the the characters that you set up here, and, and one of the first people we meet is Paul Craddock. Yes. And you have so much fun with him. And what's interesting is at first he's not a particularly likable character, and I think even though he never becomes particularly likable, we still like him. I think you do a great job of of dealing with our empathy for this guy. So talk about creating Paul Craddock. Oh, Paul's, Paul was, was my was my favourite um, character to write. I mean, because he's funny and he's sort of, and he speaks the truth. He's And he's snarky. 
And he's a bit of a narcissist and narcissists are always great fun to write. Actually, very interestingly about about Paul is, is I, I really think that he's, you know, quite similar to me in a lot of ways. I mean, we're both kind of, he's a failed actor and I understand what failure is, you know, even though, you know, I've had some successes along the way, I've failed a lot. And that's what, and, and I understand that bitterness and he's, that he's kind of going through, which forms quite a lot of his his character. So I, I really loved writing him. And then I, there was a review, I think it was in the UK Guardian, where the reviewer was saying about all the characters that they were fairly authentic and then said, except for Paul Craddock. <laughs> I was, oh, but he's my favourite. Oh, I got bored. And another reviewer actually said that as well. So you, you just can't, you can't tell, can you? I mean... Oh, I really enjoyed Paul. And uh, now his uh, sections, most of them are from a book that he's writing. So, yeah. And one of the things that I like about this book, it's a book, and then there's the book within the book, and then there's the many excerpts mm. from many books within the book because uh, we live in a world where everybody is writing a book. Yes, especially in this country, yeah. I, I think it's it's huge. It's like everyone's got a book in them, and you know, especially now with self-publishing. But his, this is kind of... Um, He's what well, the book that he's talking that that is a almost like one of those celebrity biographies. It's like a tell-all sort of, you know, that would be published very very fast, you know, and and actually cashing in on the disaster. So that is what his biography is is about. It's about him looking after his niece who managed to survive the crash, and um, yeah, it is it, it is a case of you know those publishers cashing in on a disaster. With Paul, he's kind of freaked out by his little niece. As his story goes on, he starts to begin he think he's suffering from Capgrass syndrome. Yes. And I, I love this this syndrome. So talk about uh, discovering that and, and finding a way to work that into the story. Um, what, how would you define it? I mean, what would you, what, how, how would you say it? Would you, would you define it? I, as I understand it, it's she looks like Sarah Lotz. Yeah. She talks like Sarah Lotz. I know in my heart it's not her. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a terribly rare um, syndrome. Um, actually, there's a... Oh, gosh, now I'm going to sound really stupid because there's a brilliant novel um, written about this. So I think that's where the idea first came from. But I think for, for, for any of us, I mean, that sort of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. is incredibly unsettling. So, and I mean, that's the other thing. It's like when you're Googling. For, to find answers, you're going to come across this kind of thing. You know, like everyone says, like, if you if you get a rash, don't Google it because you're going to find out something you don't really want to know. <laughs> and then you start really believing, oh, my gosh, I have bubonic plague because everything points to it. This is it. I am going to die. And I think that's what happened to, to Paul is he was basically, um, you know, starting to strange things were happening. His niece was freaking him out a little bit. And because of his already kind of quite fractured psyche, it was, he started to look for answers. And, you know, he also started going on alien sites, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know so the aliens are here sites. So this, but the Capgras syndrome to him is actually seemed quite rational in comparison to everything else, you know? So that's what he hit upon. I wish I could remember the name of that book because it was absolutely brilliant and I feel terrible now. Well, one of the things that it's uh, important to remember as you read this book, because this book is about survivors who are under a lot of scrutiny afterwards, is that the first five letters of pressure are press. <laughs> and and uh, that's the subject of a, a lot of pressure in this book because all these people, these survivors, and anybody associated with them and people around the crash are all kind of under scrutiny of the press. And so I'd like you to talk about kind of creating this environment of um, unsettling media scrutiny, which I think you do really well. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think that was that was the other kind of thing when I was thinking about, um, you know, writing an air crash novel is whenever there's an air crash in throughout the world, it becomes intense media scrutiny, like you say. It's like blow by blow. I mean, we look at what happened with the Malaysia air disaster, which was, yeah, let's face it, pretty much... I mean, it terrified me because the events were that were happening in real life, I'd actually written about. So mm-hmm. it was it was terrifying. But yeah, that was an in, in, intensive media scrutiny. And I was trying to figure out why is this? And I think it is because so many of us have to fly. It is our worst nightmare being shoved on a plane with a sort of 
you it's totally out of your control and you know you, just the the human sort of cost of it but yeah no i mean and i also read i mean one of the plane crashes the japanese air crash was um, based on jl123 which is the single biggest air disaster in history and i remember reading accounts afterwards of how the the media treated the you know the very few survivors of that i mean they were climbing over the hospital walls they were conning you know the the hospital staff to get in and talk to the survivors and they're basically just sort of invading their privacy for a soundbite so I really did want to get that across. And also, like, the media bias. I mean, what spin they want to put on it, whether it's the right-wing media or the left-wing media, everyone has a bias. I mean, just like this morning, I was just flicking from one news station to another news station, and, you know, you can. it's very clear the, the different biases that, that people, you know, that sort of, the, or the agendas that people have. So I, that was quite important to get across. It's like they live in on different worlds. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I have to ask, if you're af- afraid of flying yes. and afraid of air crashes, did writing this novel just keep you like in a constant state of kind of upset nervousness? Or did you kind of cool out and say, OK, hey, I'm I'm not afraid anymore? It was when I wrote the opening section, which was I thought it, it, it which is basically about Pamela Mae Donald, who is going down in a, in a the, the air crash that the airplane she's on is crashing in real time, you know, so you hear the thunk of the luggage falling and you smell the sort of the burning plastic. I, that, that to me, I wrote it in one go and I could not sleep for two weeks afterwards. I thought it would be a way to, to face my fear. It made it worse. It made it so much worse. It was, oh, it was horrendous. I had to like take hardcore sleeping tablets after that. Doing the investigation into the, you know, the sort of behind the scenes sort of, because there's an awful lot that didn't, make it into the novel you know the sort of technical stuff that helped and talking to pilots helped because they are amazing people they are sort of they've they've got their stuff together you know so that made me feel a little bit better but the, the opening chapter no that was I, I almost wish I hadn't written that because it really did scare scare me yeah you mentioned Pamela Mae Donald yes she's a great character in this novel even though she's only in it for about pages or so. So, I mean, that's an interesting uh, decision for you as a writer to create a character whom you immediately kill off, yet who becomes uh, incredibly important as the novel unfolds. Well, she, I mean, she's the catalyst to the novel. So in some ways she is, in some ways she is the main character because, so what happens is like the plane crashes that she's on, she's en route to visit her daughter in Osaka. It's like one of the first times she's ever got on a plane. So she's already terrified as the plane sort of crashes. I mean, it's all her worst nightmares come true. And she manages to survive for a few seconds and she leaves a message because she sees some kind of vision. We don't know if she's actually what she's seeing is true or if it's all in her mind and she manages to record a message on her phone to her pastor and this message then kind of eventually reverberates around the world yeah I do feel very guilty about killing killing her off because she is one of my favorite characters and I think she is one of that rarest of thing a truly good person with real integrity. So I felt bad. <laughs> I, I really liked her. And I have to say, I even to a certain extent, liked uh, her pastor, Pastor Lynn. Yes. I, I think you do a really good job with him because we get him in his words, but we also get him in the words of Lola Cando. Yes. And I think this gives us a really interesting vision of this man. As you created him, uh, did you start out just with the the kind of hardcore end times beliefs and you must have done a lot of research into that oh, stuff. Oh, I really did. I did. I knew nothing at all about it. I knew nothing about the rapture to be honest before I started. And I I oh, I read so many books on prophecy theory. I had some great people who um who helped me out with that as well, who actually a couple of them who do believe in it and who were very generous with their time. And I also read the left behind books. Oh which, my god. I read all of them. <laughs> oh no. They were I thought they were great. I mean they were really compelling. Yeah, and then at the other you know, like then the other side, you know, of um uh Tom Perotta's book, uh, The Leftovers. Oh right. Which is a superb piece of work. But um so I, st- I really started I had to start pretty much from scratch. I mean, obviously I read the Bible again and Revelation and all that kind of stuff. But I was you know, the the problem with with writing about this is that it's very, very easy to be stereotypical. It's very, very easy to 
just look at look at the you know the sort of what you'd expect the the sort of evil right wing pastor who's sort of a real fundamentalist and I I did try get to get across with Pastor Len is that he's also a person and 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 he's been manipulated himself he has his faith is manipulated in the end is not um, by those who are not necessarily doing what they're doing for religious reasons but for political reasons and and monetary gain. I think one of the things that you do do really well with Pastor Lynn is give us this kind of uh, complicated vision of the man. And so, but the the way you that you manage this is with Lola Cando. So mm. talk about coming up with her character. And this is this kind of uh, a great piece of oral history uh, that Elspeth, uh, uh, these interviews that Elspeth conducts mostly by Skype, which I'm guessing you're quite familiar with yes, yourself. Yes, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, she's actually, you see, I think if you if you wanted to stereotype her, you would say that she was a tot with a heart. Is that how you say it here? Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, but she's um, I, again. I think she is one of the very few good characters as well. I mm-hmm. mean, she's actually a prostitute who Pastelen goes to uh, visit occasionally, and also because she becomes his confidant. And what I liked about her was that, like back in back in Cape Town, I'm, I know quite a few sex workers. And one thing that's hardly ever spoken about is the good that sex workers do. For example, if you are disabled or whatever, or differently abled, and you know that's a completely excellent option for you to do that. And that's what she does. Is she's she also helps a lot of people out. And Pastelen just happens to be one of her um, clients. And he starts talking to her and confiding in her. And this is where we, I think it's probably from her that he gets the seed that perhaps these three children and these three accidents could possibly be some kind of um, sign of um, the rapture. And I like that whole theme. And I, I, one of the things I really liked was that you had mentioned, uh, this is something that I remember that kind of freaked me out, was you have the previous president in the White House meeting with end times believers, yes. which is what George Bush actually did. Yes. And that's a pretty darn scary moment for anybody who is not like looking forward to a biblical apocalypse. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of the book is about power and it's and it's about manipulating fear. And I did, I, and I, I read books from both sides of the equation, the sort of, you know, what what is the influence of, of the religious right on, on the political, political sphere and is if for example are those in power meeting with this kind of sort of you know element because they just want the political support or is it due to something to do with the, with faith and belief and yeah no the I, I did read some pretty completely scary stuff about it from both sides <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm wondering, because those kind of fears mm. play through the novel yes. and become a kind of a major theme, have have you got any kind of blowback from that? Yeah, I, I did. I have. I mean, I, I mean, but basically, I suppose the crux of the novel is that, um, you know, like what happened with after 9-11 is that our lives basically changed, didn't they? I mean, like, you know, for example, airport security will never be the same. There was the knock-on effect of the war on terror, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I suppose that um, writing about, you know, there is a certain religious element in in the novel that that I that I am kind of looking at, has touched quite a few nerves. So I have started to get some, some kind of quite scary emails from people. You know, and I do I do write back and say, look, this is fiction. It is, you know, this is the way the story went. I'm I'm not, you know, necessarily sort of um, making a statement against your particular beliefs. What I'm making a statement against is using belief and faith and fear to propagate hatred. And that I'm very happy to say that I, that, that is what the book is explicitly against, is, is that is, is hatred. Using, I mean, I believe, I, I have no, no, who has a problem with anyone having faith or belief? But when that belief is used um, to hurt others, then I have a big problem with it. Did you at some point like have 10,000 cards and have to put them on a wall that's, you know, like 500 feet long with, with uh, you know, uh, 2,000 yards of yarn connecting them to here to figure <laughs> out which part went where? No, I didn't. I mean, that would have been smart. <laughs> yeah, same. I should have used Scrivener as well, which I've heard is brilliant for that kind of thing. But no, I used to just read the novel all the way through, you know, and then start. I had to... 
it's one of the very few things that I'm actually quite good at in life is being able to sort of plot and see where things would will go in the future with a novel. So yeah, no, I just uh, I did just partly let it grow organically and also sort of jump ahead and just read back and and things like that. But um, when it was edited, that was that was quite huge because my my editor, my UK editor especially, was amazing, and we there's like there's a whole stream of sort of conspiracy that's going through in the Japanese sections and a lot of that had to be very simplified and cut out and because I really was just running with it you know I was really having a <laughs> well um one of the what's nice about a book like this too is that you can kind of uh it, it you get to play with a lot of stuff um you do a great job Here's a book that's a thriller, I can't put it down, page-turning mystery. You cannot wait to find out what happens. But you have some really nice contemplative character pieces mm. having to do with Alzheimer's disease. And I thought you'd handled that very well. Yeah, that um, that's that's quite personal to me. I've got family members who, I mean, I think pretty much everyone has. And, yeah, I did a great deal of reading and a great deal of research. And there's some absolutely terrific blogs out there from people who and honest blogs from people who are living with spouses or parents or siblings or friends who've got alzheimer's which really kind of helped you know me you know sort of write about it um from an honest perspective but i also it really upset me i find it really upsetting writing about it and sort of investigating it deeper i mean because i think that the the character who in the novel her husband has Alzheimer's and he's like the love of her life and they've been best friends and that's all they've only ever needed each other very much like my my grandmother and my grandfather they were, were they, they were just everything to each other and I think that when your your partner and your best friend and your someone you've been through life with has it gets struck down by this it's it can be devastating because that is the last memory you have of them when you talk about that, it strikes me that one of the themes of this novel is uh, surrogates, replacements, this kind of uh, imposters. Because in a sense, when somebody has Alzheimer's, they're, they're replaced by an imposter. And there are people out there who believe that the three are horsemen of the apocalypse. And you have the people out there who believe that everything is down to the aliens among us. And I love Simon Lancaster because... <laughs> You're your David Icke stand-in because I've always had a fondness for somebody who thought that um, the royal family were actually lizards. But they are. We all know that. <laughs> yeah. I had a great time, actually, sort of investigating all of this and hanging out on forums with people, discussing. I mean, I was quite upfront about what I was doing. But they very happily chat to me about, the, you know, that their beliefs are that the aliens are actually here. They are actually here. And they get, they're quite convincing, I have to say, <laughs> especially as regards the UK government at the moment. I think they might be right. But, uh, yeah, I, I love what you say about the imposter thing. I mean, I, I think it is actually. And, you know, I haven't really, really thought about that. I mean, I love it when that comes up with a theme that I haven't necessarily thought about. But then there's also the um, Japanese um, child survivor hero. He lives through his father, who is actually based on the real-life um, Android man, um, mm -hmm. creates for him... Do you know about the, this fellow, by the way? He no, make, he makes. Oh, he's him. amazing. He's very famous. He makes exact doppelganger... He's made an exact doppelganger Android of himself that is moved with, you know, motion capture technology. So when if he kind of... It will, it, it will mirror his facial expressions exactly. He The Android wears the same clothes as him. It has... If he... He, if he gets a different haircut, he cuts its hair the same. And he can control it remotely. So if he's in, like, he's based at Osaka, if he doesn't feel like going on, like, a conference, he sends his Android. So he sends his Android off to a conference in, say, Belgium and remote, work it remotely. So his Android will give a lecture. And he says what's fascinating about that is that people will actually sort of tap the Android on the shoulder and really start eventually get over that happy valley sort of thing and end up totally engaging with it as if it was human. And and so what his investigations are more are less about robotics and more about psychology, about what makes us human. And so in the novel, the the Japanese character, the Japanese child survivor, his father is actually based on, on, on this guy and his father builds for him a doppelganger of 
himself, like a child robot. And this child will only speak through this android. And I suppose that's what and I was wanting to look at how other people would treat the, the child android and um, how quickly they'd get used to the, used to that, you know. Well, I love this kind of idea of the uncanny valley because once you kind of open that crack, Mm. it's all around us. From Capgras syndrome Mm. to the ravages of Alzheimer's to these robots to the potential aliens who are just waiting to rip off their human masks (laughs) a la, what it was, V? I think it was V. Yeah, it was V. V, Eating rats. Yeah, Yeah. no, gosh. You know, we are all ready for the people around us to reveal that that they're not very human at all. Uh, Oh, absolutely. I I think I was really, I mean, when I was was a kid, my dad would just give me anything to read. I mean, he was never sort of, he didn't believe in censoring reading. And when I was a child, I was reading like Philip K. Dick. Mm. And that is a massive, massive theme to his work is the imposter syndrome and that what what is humanity? What makes you human? Can, you know, robots have a soul? What is a soul? You know, so that made a massive impression on me. And I mean, even in my other work, in like the work I write under Essel Gray, a lot of that is completely obsessed with sort of, you know, what makes us human body image um, and also my fear of mannequins, <laughs> <laughs> which is the same kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by that, yeah. Watch the wrong episode of Twilight Zone when you're like eight to twelve years old, and you'll never talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never like a mannequin again. Well, but what's interesting in all this, too, is that when we meet everyday humans, we think, okay, that looks like a regular person to me, but they may turn out to be a monster just by virtue of who they are. And there are plenty of very human monsters in this book. Yeah, and I think actually the worst ones are they're not they don't take center, center stage. They're sort of off page. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I mean, I'm I'm very I'm a believer that the monster should always stay in the closet and that you shouldn't ever see or you can get a glimpse, but you shouldn't see the whole monster at any time. I think that that to me is real horror is the the fact that the the monsters stay in the shadows, well, you can't always see them and you can't always grapple with them. They're slippery characters. So, yeah, no, that is most of most of the the monsters in in, in the novel are. It depends what you classify as a monster, though, I suppose, because they're uh, everyone. It's you're gonna. It, I think it's going to be a fairly subjective read is that, for people. Is that you know what I think of the monsters in the book, other people might not think of the monsters in the book which is kind of interesting. <laughs> well, you uh, one of the things, too, about this book is that for all the action and incident and plot and the tension that you managed to create, I was reading this book, and I could not wait to turn the pages. And I'm also thinking at the same time, you know, no matter how much I want to turn the pages and how much I want to find out what's going on, you know, nothing's really happening. <laughs> but Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. That's a fantastic compliment. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you were writing it, it seems like you really ratcheted back. And I guess so. Lots of this book is left on the cutting room floor. No, actually. Well, yeah, some of it, like some of the characters are, but they were peripheral and they were just me sort of um, indulging myself. You know, there's with little vignettes and little sort of short stories within the book, you know, the, the character, peripheral characters' stories. But yeah, I think it's, you know, the the events that happened in the novel actually happen really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way that the world kind of changes because of these events does happen pretty fast. But I, I think change can often be, often be in a lot of ways quite banal. It happens very fast. And we we accept it and we go about our, our daily lives. You know, I, was, I, I think, well, this is a tiny example. But for example, how we used to all live in Cape Town in South Africa now. You know, for the last 10 years, the violence has been... You know, for it doesn't matter what what demographic you're from has been extraordinary. So we all have learned to live with that, you know, and it changes the way where you are. But we and we talk about it and complain about it, but we all do it. We're all very good at boiling our own selves as the frog. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> yes. I I think too. You mentioned nine eleven, and I hadn't thought much about this as a nine eleven novel, but in many ways, this is the ultimate nine eleven novel. Oh uh, uh, yeah. In uh, that it, as you said, 
after 9-11, the world really changed in many fundamental ways. And I would, you know, frankly, I had hoped that none of that would happen, but it all happened. And uh, this, you kind of create a great parallel in retrospect. I've realized that this is, you've done a great job at kind of uh, taking 9-11 and in a sense turning it up to 11. Well, I didn't, um, thank you, but I, I, I wasn't really aware of it. That wasn't my initial plan you know i i think it it was it was always subconscious and it was an and an someone who wrote to me and said you know this is based this is this comes from 911 surely and i was like no certainly not and then afterwards i thought dead right because it is all about i mean the crux of it is about manipulating people's fear i mean you have four plane crashes that happen on the same day three survivors that possibly shouldn't have survived. I mean, the speculation is rife. The media is going crazy. Conspiracy theories are popping up everywhere, you know, and, and, you know, concomitant events after that. People need answers. You know, everyone wants an answer. We all want answers. You know, is there, why are we here? You know, is there a God? Are there aliens out there? Is there life on Mars? We need to know and we want to know. And um, a lot of that is driven by fear. Just like after 9-11, a lot of the, um, you know, it was fear that um, sort of caused a lot of what went on afterwards. You mentioned something that's at the crux of this book, and one of the things that's really enjoyable we haven't talked about yet Mm. is your sense of conspiracy theories. You have so much fun with them, and you play them out in the plot in different ways. So talk about, I mean, some of them go this way, some of them use this way. It's like you use conspiracy theories the way most people like use sentences. (laughs) Well, I, I, they're everywhere, aren't they? I mean, again, we can talk about after 9-11, the amount of conspiracy theories that kind of popped up. Uh, there's conspiracy theories around everything. There's conspiracies around the, I don't know, the Kardashians, isn't there? So, I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, uh, I, I, and, and I, would, I think they're lizard people, too. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it is a case of why, um, why would people believe in this kind of bizarre sort of alternative theories you know even you can have a rational explanation for things and yet people will still believe it is for example aliens and i that fascinates me why would you believe that you know in an alternative i mean it's, i suppose it's more interesting isn't it i suppose it's more fun you know if we believe that sort of the uk government is run by lizards you know that's much more fun than actually the reality <laughs> <laughs> they're all like sort of yeah um so well, if it was run by people like us, then we'd have to look at ourselves and think, well, gosh, we're not much better than lizards ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Which is better? Yeah, probably the lizards. So, um, yeah. When you were researching the intermixing of the religion and the science, talk about like creating the tension between these two different kind of uh, competing theories of uh, competing worldviews. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that to me is fascinating as as well. I mean, it's, again, it's, it goes back to what I was saying before. I mean, it is, why would you believe um, in, if you've got a concrete theory, for example, that there cannot possibly be life on Mars, why do you insist that there could be life on Mars if we have proven that it, it couldn't happen? Um, so that, Well, there's a face on Mars. There's a face on Mars. <laughs> I, would, I, see, I, I actually want to believe in it. I really do want to believe in it. So, I, I confess that I love to watch all the, the, the lowest of the low uh, uh, Discovery Channel shows about a UFO files unsealed i mean it's the best science fiction out there oh it's brilliant and the the aliens the the egyptian aliens oh oh ancient aliens ancient aliens oh god i love that show could it be and they convince you (laughs) and i found like when i was when i was doing the research on this i really at one stage started thinking whether it was be the aliens or or the kind of prophecy theory i actually three o'clock in the morning after spending 12 hours researching this looked at myself and said what if they're right? What if they're right? What are you going to do then, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it can be very convincing. And, you know, it's it's also quite comforting. There's a, there's a sort of comfort in that sort of belief that there really isn't. It, in, in some sense, there isn't, I suppose, with, with, with science. So... Um, I guess it's nice to know that we haven't made this mess ourselves. It's all the aliens and the prophecies' fault. <laughs> You talked a little bit about Philip K. Dick, and that's one of the things I think you do very well in this book is integrate these kind of science fictional aspects 
of the of Android Man into the book and make it seem very everyday. So talk about writing a book that uses elements of the fantastic but never actually uses them. I, well, I think a lot of that is, it, um, I mean, it comes from years of reading Stephen King, which is all about, you know, the sort of, the real horror is, you know, you'd get to love the characters and you're just worried that something bad's going to happen to them rather than the monsters. And it's also the sort of elements of the fantastic can 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 seep through, but actually the, the, the there's a lot of, um, it's the mundane details that make those those fantastical sort of science fictional elements real because we go about our day-to-day lives you know sort of that kind of thing and then so and you know like the, uh, what we accept so for example the 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 Japanese child who is refuses to talk other than through his alien doppel, his um, android doppelganger is it's it's a wild thing it's a crazy thing but because you know I, I did try and put it through every day sort of through an everyday lens rather than a sort of so so you you know it it is grounded in some way so it's the it's a mix of the everyday and that is all in the detail it's all in tiny little details i thought you did a great job with the uh, uh chiyoko and and, and ryu and orsman uh, talk about developing this whole sub theme that takes place on chat boards and uh, ends up with some really kind of uh, unhappy real world <laughs> incidents. Well, one of the um, the love story between uh, well, I say it's a, it's not really a love story, is it? It um, is a love story. Yeah, but um, Chioka uh, is the um, cousin of Hiro, the the Japanese child survivor, and she's on a message board with Ryu, and Ryu is what is known as a hikikomori, which is he's he basically there's there's estimated about 1.5 million Japanese sort of um, young men sort of aged 18 to 22 who refuse to leave their rooms, who basically only communicate through the computer. And I mean, they, when I say they leave their rooms, I mean, they some of them don't even go to the bathroom. So they board at the windows. They just don't want to face society. And I started doing a lot of research into this, and it was fascinating because I mean, I am a, I'm a, I'm a very reclusive person as well. So I absolutely identified with that sort of social anxiety that you don't want to leave the house. So his only communication is through um, through the internet, and he starts talking to Chioka, and he starts falling madly in love with her because she's also got a, in a lot of way, a very pessimistic sort of sense of sense of life, and. Then they, Ria does this incredibly brave thing, which is, I'm just a bit of a spoiler, but he decides he's going to leave his room, which for him is akin to you and I, you know, climbing Mount Everest sort of thing. And along the way, he does connect with a lot of disaffected sort of young men like him, you know, men who are finding, so you know, pressures of getting a job and sort of being a good person in society. And so that's where he starts to get some support. One of the things I have to ask is, has this been optioned for the movies or? Oh yeah, it's um, Company Pictures in the UK have optioned it for a TV series. So yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I think, <laughs> I, I think I'm glad to hear it's going to be a UK TV series because they tend to do a better job, I think, than we I, do. I don't here. know how they the amount of CGI for like four plane crashes. Gosh, I don't know. So we'll see. But yeah, that's really exciting. Is it already what, under production? No, not at all. No, no. They're just waiting for, there's an, um, I'm just currently writing the second book. It's not really a sequel. It's a standalone novel, but it's kind of related to the events in some way. Can't say much without being, you know, awfully spoilery. Okay, well, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was my next question. So uh, <laughs> so we have a, a kind of a book that stands adjacent to this. Yeah, it is. They're, like, they're, they're kind of like twisted brother and sister. So you could read them in any order and it wouldn't really, uh, you know, I was very, as far as I'm concerned, is I wrapped up the story in this novel completely. Mm-hmm. Other people are like, you haven't. Um, so it's, that's been varying. Actually, the science fiction community and horror community are like, you you spelled it out too much. Everyone else is like, I threw this book across the room. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. So, But the second book does address some, some unanswered questions, if you believe they were, in fact, unanswered. And um, it's set on a cruise ship. Wow. Now, uh, how far is it done? <laughs> um, I'm really just, I'm editing it now. I'm just polishing it. So, it's so we should see it soon or will it come out soon? Oh, it'll come out next year. Okay. So, so. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> man, I have to wait that long? 
What about in the UK? Is it going to come out sooner in the UK? No, I think they'll probably do the same thing oh, and bring okay. them out together. So yeah. this, this came out at the same time in both places? Yeah, it's only been out for like three days. Oh, yeah, so yeah. really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Well, yeah. it's it's a, it's a stunning book. I really <laughs> enjoyed the heck Thank out of it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Now, having done almost in the editing stages, do you know where you're going next? Are, are we going to see more of this universe, as they like to say, in the science fiction and horror community? I am doing like a... I'm going to do some stuff that is companion to, to it that uh, that is not going to be published sort of you know it's going to be other material for people who like the book and who want to read some more you know mm-hmm. just kind of um but no my i think my next sort of solo book is not going to be it'll be a horror novel but it, it won't be in this universe okay well we'll look forward to it <laughs> Thank you. And, and also to we're going to have to dig up your uh early uh books are well they are they being republished the horror um, I think that um, was that the mall and uh, oh no those those are doing those are actually doing quite well they've they've just come into the states now oh good yeah, those are a collaboration with um, Louis Greenberg uh-huh. and they're very very dark horror and and they're absolute joy to write and so they're very satirical they're sort of quite satirical sort of horror novels um, horror is a fun genre for that because you can really externalize and just make fun of it. Who's a Bentley Little has done some yeah. done some fun stuff yeah. with that. No, absolutely. No, that's yeah. Wow. So um, those are those are just coming into the states, and then uh, my early novels. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want them. I think Hodder were quite interested in my first novel, which is um, I spent a year living on the streets of Paris as a beggar and a fire eater. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. And I wrote a book about that, basically, about my experiences as a street person in Paris. So, so that's Hodder and Sutton. They're, they've published some uh, rock and horror novels. That's... Oh, they're, they're fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're Stephen King's. Um, UK publisher. And Ramsey Campbell's too. Yeah. I have a great Ramsey Campbell, the one safe place in my Hotter and Stott edition. I've been speaking with Sarah Lotz. Her new novel is The Three. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you very much. It was awesome. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.